Good morning, church. It is good to see you and good to be with you. I want to welcome, uh, even though you've already been welcomed, I want to again welcome uh, each and every one of you here. Uh, those of you that were eager to come here today, welcome. Those of you that maybe didn't feel like coming here today and you're here, I want to welcome you as well. I'm going to continue uh, the welcome with these words. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, and to all who sin and need a Savior, Cornerstone opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, who is a friend of sinners. Welcome. Amen. Glad to be together today. For those of you that are visiting or haven't been here in recent weeks, uh, we are on a journey through the book of Romans, and whoever is preaching here on Sunday morning, whoever is preaching anywhere on Sunday morning, my understanding of a preacher's responsibility is to serve the Word. Um, my responsibility this morning isn't to entertain you, it isn't really to be eloquent, but it is to uh, serve the Word of God to you, so that you would know Him and love Him and be changed. And so just a little background before we dive into it, hopefully you still have your Bibles open to Romans 11. We're going to go there in just a moment, or your device open, or if you don't have a Bible, just grab your phone and say Google or say uh, Google Romans 11 or type it so everyone doesn't hear you saying it. Uh, say uh, Romans, uh, type in Romans 11, and we'll look at uh, a few verses together. But let me just set the stage briefly. When we study the scriptures, we have to understand the historical context, or it's really confusing. We have to know what's going on in that passage, and just kind of let you know what's been going on in this unit of scripture. We could almost call this area of scripture the justification of God. God's reputation is at stake in the first century. Uh, something you and I might not think about, but what's happened in the first century is the church was overwhelmingly Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. We almost need a reminder of that. Jesus looked like a Galilean Jew with, with, with darker skin and, and darker hair. He was Jewish culturally, biologically, everything. And the church was overwhelmingly Jewish. And what's happened by the time Paul has written the book of Romans is that Israel, the Jewish people, the nation of all nations that is chosen by God to be his family, to be special, to be called out, not because they were more ethical or more numerous or superior, they weren't, but simply because he loved them, they are falling away from the Messiah. And the church is becoming increasingly non-Jewish. We don't really think of that today. But that was a massive problem in the minds of first century Christians. And so God's character and his reputation, these people that you've chosen, aren't following you. And so can we trust you? Is God real? So this is the issue that's going on in Romans 9 through 11. And we'll get to kind of the core of the message in a few minutes, but let's just dive in and look at these first few verses of Romans 11, which is dealing with this problem that I just articulated. So Paul says in Romans 11, 1, verse 1, I ask then, did God reject his people? 
Like, did he change his mind? Did he reject the Israelites? By no means. And then Paul reminds us, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham. Oh, and by the way, from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, we can race right past that little phrase, but that was a big deal. For Paul to be able to say to the Jewish community in the first century, I can trace my ancestry. This was before Ancestry.com, I think, isn't it? First century. I've never even looked at that website, but I think I've seen commercials or whatever. So he could trace his ancestry back to Benjamin, who's mentioned in Genesis as one of the 12 sons of Jacob. It's a big deal. So Paul's first thing he's saying to this, pro- to this first century problem, is God reliable? Is he trustworthy? Can we, can, we, can we say that he's honest? The people that he's chosen aren't really following the Messiah that he sent? And Paul's first argument is, um, look at me. Look at me. Yeah, many are not following, but, but, but some are. So that's the first thing he's saying is, 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 look at me. I'm an example of one of the Jews who are following the Messiah, Jesus, who has come. Verse 2. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Or if we jump down to, um, to, to verse 5, the end of verse 5, chosen by grace. That's what he means here by foreknew. He, he foreknew them. So this is Paul's second response. Is, is God reliable? Is, is, Paul's trying to justify the character and authenticity and reliability and integrity of God. And the second thing he's saying is, Um, Yeah, God knew this was going to happen. Uh, He foreknew this. He chose them, and he actually chose others as well, which we're going to be getting into in this chapter. He chose these, this ethnic people, this national people, Israel, but he also chose others. So he foreknew and chose them by grace. That's his his second piece of evidence that God hasn't rejected his people. And then let's look at verses two through five here. The middle of verse two through five, we get his third piece of evidence. Don't you know the scripture? Don't you know the scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he appealed to God against Israel? Verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets. So this is a quote. This is, this is Elijah saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. I'm the only one left. I mean, that, that's a pretty pessimistic view. I'm the only one who believes in God. I'm the only one left. And what was God's answer to him? Look at verse 4. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This competing deity, this competing God that, that the Israelites were, were very tempted to worship. We're not tempted to worship. I have never had anyone come into my office and say, you know what, my struggle, Pastor, here's what, here's what I'm struggling with. Worshiping Baal. That's, that's my problem. I need some counseling. Can you refer me to a psychologist or psychiatrist? Is this something you can happen? Is this something you can handle? Worship of Baal. That's not our issue. We have other idolatrous issues. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But this was real for them because Baal was understood to be the God who provided rain. And they needed rain so they could eat. So it was a temptation to go to those festivals and worship him so that you would get rain, so that you would have food. And so God is saying, no, there's 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee. Verse 5, so too at the present time. So he's, he's, his, his third piece of argument is there is a remnant. Verse 5, chosen by grace. This isn't something new. 
The fact that few people are following God in the first century isn't something new. That may be something we need to hear today as we look around our country. Does it seem like few people are following God? Does it seem like few people are honest people and have integrity, not as a means to get ahead in business, but because they believe in a God who created the universe and created them, and they want to be men and women of integrity before God? It can feel like very few are following them. And so what Paul is saying is, actually, this isn't anything new. There was a remnant back in Elijah's day, and there's a remnant today. Now, what's new is, is in, in the first century context, is, is the church demographics are shifting from almost completely Jewish to being a very small remnant, a minority of Jews. So three arguments here, three uh, pieces of evidence that God hasn't rejected his chosen people. Paul says, look at me. He says, God's chosen them by grace. He foreknew this. And three, there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. So there's some things here for us, but the, the verse that is coming is, is what I want to spend most of our time up uh, time with today as far as how does this relate to your life and my life. It's the verses that are coming. So let's just finish up going through the text, and then we're going to talk about how this relates to our lives today out of verses 6 through 10 mostly. So let's come back and, and, and let me finish up. So verse 6, And if by grace, then it is no longer works. Emphasis on God's sovereign grace, him, chose, him choosing people. That's the emphasis here. A couple weeks ago, it was on our faith or our unbelief on, on, from the human perspective. This is the divine perspective, verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Grace is the undeserved favor of God that comes just at his sovereign mercy and love. It's just, it's grace. It has nothing to do with our works has nothing to do with merit. Verse 7, what then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. But the elect did, or those who are genuinely followers of God did. Those who are part of the church, to use first century language, did. So what Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. We're going to come back to this because I want to talk about how this relates to us today and what we are seeking and that we find what we're seeking. In fact, let me just say a couple more things about verse 7. What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. If you got your Bibles open or your devices open, look back briefly at verse 31 of chapter 9, 931. It's kind of related to, to verse 6, or sorry, to verse 7. Verse 7 again, what Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. But the elect did, verse 31 of chapter 9, Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, hasn't attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. So when we look back at verse 7, when it says, what Israel sought so earnestly, it didn't obtain. What is it seeking? Israel, the people of Israel are seeking righteousness. They're seeking God's approval. They're seeking God saying, you're in. You're on the team. I love you. You're with me. I mean, we all can connect with that. Now, if you are a skeptic and don't believe in God, you may, may not be there yet. But once you get to the place where you acknowledge there is, there is a, a maximally great being out there, and he actually exists, then you want his approval. 
And the way they're describing his approval is, I want to be righteous. I want to be viewed by him as righteous. But how did they seek this righteousness? 931 tells us they sought this righteousness by pursuing a law by works. They took the Old Testament scriptures and they made a bunch of rules out of them and said, if you do these things, if you meet these standards, then you'll be declared righteous and you'll be in. And what Romans is saying is they got that all wrong. That's not what the Old Testament scriptures are teaching. What Israel sought so earnestly was God's approval, and they did it by Sabbath-keeping. They did it by studying the scriptures. They did it by caring for the immigrant, for the widow, for the poor, for the orphan. Do these things. These are all good things. But if you do these things and you do them up to this line, then you will be okay and you'll be declared righteous. That's a distortion of what the scriptures actually teach. The scriptures teach in the Old Testament, as well as the New, but in the Old Testament that we are saved not by works, but we are justified by our faith in what God has done, not what we do. So these works of Sabbath keeping, of studying the scriptures, of caring for the immigrant, the widow, the poor, and the orphan, these are results of what we do in light of knowing God, to worship him and to praise him and to glorify him, we do these things. We don't do these things to get the mark of okay or the mark of righteousness. So this searching, this earnest seeking but not obtaining is something that we all can relate to in life. Some of us here today might not actually be pursuing God. We might be pursuing something else in the place of God, but we are all pursuing something. We know we've got to find more. There's got to be something more than, than, than just me. And so they're seeking God, but they didn't find it. They didn't find him. They didn't find righteousness. Look at John 5, another verse that relates to this experience, this dynamic. Jesus is speaking here. And he's speaking to the religious leaders of the first century. He's speaking to the pastors, if you will, of the first century. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, to Christ, to have life. The Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, testify to this Messiah who's going to come, and I am the Messiah. You have taken the scriptures and came up with this codified reasons of of how you get the stamp of righteousness, and you've missed what the scriptures are pointing to. They're pointing to a person. They're pointing to Jesus. They're pointing to me. So, I think you get where I'm going now, where I'm going with this passage that seems so irrelevant to most of us at the beginning. Okay, when we think about the historical problem here, the historical problem is that you, the church is becoming overwhelmingly Jewish, overwhelmingly not Jewish. I mean, just like Baal, that's not what you were struggling with this week, probably, that the church is overwhelmingly not Jewish. Nobody in my office this week. No prayer cards about that this week. But we can connect very much with what they were seeking. They were seeking to be okay, 
to be righteous before God, to know that, that they're going to hear, well done from him. How, how do we go about this? How does this happen? As I was thinking about works and, and finding ourselves and, and, and who we want to be and, and who we are, most of us are, are somewhere on that journey of, of, of leaving behind uh, who we are and, and trying to become who we want to be. And this, this journey begins pretty early in life. The awkward time of junior high. Anybody remember junior high? Can you remember back that far? It was like, like 12 years ago for me, something like that, 13, 14. I remember uh, being on the basketball team in eighth grade, and it was a big deal. I'm, I'm on the team, you know, and, and um, you know, once you, you're on the team, you, you make the cut, you're feeling pretty good. And um, I, I, I have in my mind still, you know, I had two coaches, and one of those coaches uh, was a yeller, you know, the type. Yes, I mean, my memory of him is yelling at me. I can remember that pass I threw to the wrong team and him yelling at me and just I, I, I can hear him yelling today that coach and in eighth grade I had another coach who was an encourager and when I did something right he 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 would affirm me and man I, I liked him a lot you know I, I liked him maybe we could get rid of this coach and just have this coach but as I'm studying this text this week I don't know how they came to my mind but these these, these two coaches came to my mind and I, I realized, you know, once you make the team or whatever, then it's still kind of really about performance. It still doesn't really matter whether you have the yelling coach or you have the encouraging coach. The reality is the guys that start the game are the five best players. And those are, it's a fight to be one of those guys. It's all about my quality, about who I am. And so there's this, like, my quality of play, like, can, am I going to be one of those guys? And if I am, if I, if I do this, if I do that, he's going to pull me out. And you're just, and, and my identity's tied up um, in that. So why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this to say that the Lord Jesus isn't really like either one of those coaches. To use the language of Romans 11, the Jews wanted to be declared righteous. To use our language, we want, we want to just be, okay, God, are you okay with me who I am? And the natural way for us to think, whether it's in a team sport, whether it's in work, even if it's in family, it's about productivity, it's about quality, it's about merit, it's about performance. And the message of the gospel just blows all that away. It just, it just gets rid of all that. And it is about grace. Grace would no longer be grace if it's based on performance and ability to follow the Sabbath, to study the Bible, to care for the immigrant, the widow, the poor, and the orphan, and maybe you make the mark. Maybe you're going to be one of the starting five. Maybe you're not. That is not the gospel. So Jesus isn't really like either of those two coaches. What Jesus says is, I expect perfection. What the Father says is, I expect perfection from you. And the gospel starts with the reality that none of us are there. We've all fallen short. So God the Father loved us so much. He loved the world so much that he sent his son who followed the law 
perfectly. He obeyed all of it 100%. And the way that we get to be declared okay, the way we get to be part of the remnant, the way we get to be part of the starting five has nothing to do with performance. It has to do with my faith in the one who obeyed the word perfectly, but not only obeyed the word perfectly, but he died in my place. Because God is a God of justice. So he doesn't just say, yeah, don't worry about all the ways that you've offended me and broken my law and rebelled against me, and I know what you've done, and I know what you've thought. He doesn't just let that go. He's a God of justice. But mercy triumphs over judgment. And so we see the mercy of God and that he pours out this justice upon his son. That's what we celebrate every Good Friday for the last 2,000 years. That the justice of God, instead of coming to me and coming to you, went on his son. And his perfect obedience and his absorbing the, the, the wrath of God the Father upon himself in our place is his expression of love. So what we need to search the scriptures to find is the gospel, is the good news. Our tendency is to flip through these to try to become what we can meritocratically so that God will say, good with us. No, it's the other way. We, we search the scriptures to, to be holy, to, to, uh, to care for the immigrant, the widow, the poor, and the orphan because of what Christ has done for us, not so that we will make the team. Are you following with me, church, what I'm saying? So they search the scriptures. Back to how does this relate to Romans 11? They earnestly sought righteousness through the scriptures, verse 7, and they didn't get it. As we search the scriptures, we have got to find the gospel message. And it's communicated in all sorts of different ways, the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is, is, is just one of the ways, I've, one of the gospel messages I've memorized. He, God the Father, made him... Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's the righteousness. How, when I'm lying in bed at night, how do I know that I'm okay with God? Because the righteousness of Christ has become mine by faith, not because of my performance. So we have to search the scriptures to find the gospel message, which comes through the book of Romans, it comes through parables, like the parable of the prodigal son. It comes through 2 Corinthians 5.21 that I just quoted. It comes so many different ways. And what is the outcome of when we understand the gospel? The outcome is that we are free and our hearts are at rest. Jesus says it in Matthew 11.28, the exact opposite of what the pastors of the first century were doing, heaping these heavy loads upon people. Jesus has come to me. I obeyed the law perfectly. I suffered in your place. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest in your soul. This is where life begins. It doesn't mean that life is going to be easy, but it means that you can find rest in the middle of the day, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, in the gospel. So we search the scriptures to find the gospel. So this is a healthy way. We're not searching the scriptures. We are not earnestly seeking righteousness by searching the scriptures and seeing if I measure up. That's the error. Those who found it, like Paul, found grace. They found it. Grace would no longer be grace. 
if it was by works. So all that is my first point. And what I'm really talking about today are healthy ways to search the scriptures. And one of the reasons, one of the main reasons we want to search the scriptures is to hear the gospel of grace into our lives in all the different ways that it's communicated, through stories, through parable, through epistolary literature like this, a letter that Paul's writing to the church in Rome. It's communicated in all these different ways. So two more reasons why, uh, two, two other examples of healthy ways to search the scriptures. Number one is to hear the gospel of grace. Number two, to grow in your love for the God of the Bible, to grow in your love for him. You know, this is the opposite of the the pharisaical first century approach. We're we're searching the scriptures to, 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 to make the team, to, to make sure I'm feeling good enough that I've, I've got up to this standard. No, We want to search the scriptures and ask God to give us hearts that love him, that love him. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Most of us don't wake up in the morning just like, I love God. Like that is just not a natural way to wake up. It's a supernatural way to wake up. So if you're waking up that way, that is awesome and that's beautiful. I'm just being honest. I don't generally wake up that way. Anybody else with me? Like I just generally don't wake up having Jesus Christ have the place of supremacy in my heart, and that's what my uppermost affections, what my, what my love is for. My love is, is going somewhere else, naturally. But God, who spoke this incredible universe into existence and sent his son to die for me, and who loves me, he's the one that I want to love. So one of the reasons that we're going to strive, that we're going to, to earnestly seek righteousness in the scriptures is to grow to love him with all that we have. Mark 12, 28 through 30, Jesus was asked the question by, by an attorney. Attorney comes to him, you know, religious attorney comes to him, uh, what, what's the most important commandment? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord, is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, as I read this, I kind of count two things, right? (laughs) And then he actually goes on to a third, but we don't have time to look at that today. But just looking at these two, I see two things here. What's the greatest commandment? Number one, the Lord our God is one. I see that as one. And then I see a second thing, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. But these two things are so related and so central to what it means to be a Christian. We could easily just skip over, okay, yeah, God is one. Even philosophers know that. If you take a philosophy class or a logic class at UC Berkeley, they'll, they'll, they'll talk about a maximally great being. And one of the things you'll learn in that philosophy class at Berkeley is a maximally great being has to be singular, has to be one. Can't have two maximally great beings. So we could just end it there, but there's a lot more about this that God is one. What the more is, is that our hearts are idle factories and we tend to produce other things that we love. Besides God. Now, in the first century, it was Baal because they wanted food, so they, they worshiped him. But for us, it's, it's more complicated, and we don't tend to worship false deities like Baal. We tend to worship more subtle things, more difficult things, more challenging things. So at the heart of Christianity is that there's, there's one God, not any other 
thing can have the place of supremacy in our hearts, and then at the heart of Christianity is loving him with all that we are, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, our body, my inner being, every single part of me, to love him. So this is what we want to search the scriptures for, that we would come away from the scriptures loving God and seeing who he is, and, and getting rid of these other things that, that naturally take the place, that, uh, that we more naturally love and what I would call our functional gods. I think that's a very helpful phrase that someone else came up with. What is my functional god? And I want to talk about two categories uh, about functional gods uh, and j- right now. And let me just say this about these two categories. Functional gods or idols, there's two categories of them. Category one is idols that need to be destroyed. There are idols that need to be destroyed. And then there are also idols or functional gods that need to be displaced. And what I mean by what the Bible means by an idol or a functional god is something that you are excessively attached to in the place of this one God. And that's what comes natural to me when I wake up. I'm excessively attached to something else, whether that's something that needs to be destroyed or whether that's something that needs to be displaced. So let me give an example of one that needs to be Destroyed. I heard a fascinating podcast. I've referred it to a couple of you. Um, a couple of you here have listened to this podcast uh, by this woman. She's a psychiatrist, uh, MD, Ann Lemke. She, she wrote a book uh, recently called A Dopamine Nation. And she doesn't use the language of idolatry. She doesn't use the language that the scriptures use, but she's talking about it without knowing it. And of course, what becomes functional God for some people, what becomes a functional God for some people is, is some sort of substance. And it's related to dopamine, this hormone and neurotransmitter uh, by, that's made by our bodies that's sometimes called the feel-good hormone. The feel-good hormone. We, we may have never heard of this, or maybe you have, but we've all felt it. And she gave some, some descriptions of how this works. Our bodies naturally produce uh, dopamine, and she she gave some categories of of what happens. So you have some chocolate, increases dopamine above our our baseline about 50%. Nicotine increases dopamine above baseline about 150%. Now, here's the zinger, and I hope you haven't experienced this, and most of us here probably haven't, but um, methamphetamine increases dopamine above baseline about a 1,000%. 1,000%. So, uh, you know, m- I think all of us are category one, right? We all, we've all tried this? Yeah. I mean, yesterday. I'm... I'm uh, some of us have, have dealt with this. Number two, if you deal in this number here, I mean, it's real obvious in this third one, this category. I mean, the, the ecstasy, the high, is really different than these other two. And then the spiritual and physical death that often follows just comes right along. So this is just one example of an idol that needs to be destroyed. We don't mess around with meth. It will kill you. 
physically and spiritually. It becomes your functional God. I don't want to spend that much time on that because the last thing preachers should be doing is spending time on other people's sins. Some of you, this might be where your battle is. And so that's part of why I'm talking about it. But I want to be really clear that I don't think this is where most of our battles are. Most of our battles are with good things. Not with idols that need to be destroyed like meth, but idols that need to be displaced. Idols that need to be put in a different sphere, in a different domain. So in in my own life, one of those things that I, I don't naturally wake up with Jesus being in the place of supremacy in my heart and my affections and love and just wanting to sing to him and praise him and love him. That's not how I, I naturally wake up. But sometimes I naturally wake up thinking that about my wife. I love my wife. I love being with her. I love traveling with her. I love going places with her. And that's good. So this is an idol that doesn't need to be destroyed. Amen? This is an idol that, that needs to be displaced, and I don't even know if that's the right word. So let me try to be really clear here. The way to deal when something that's good, like my wife, becomes, I become excessively attached to her in the place of Jesus, I shouldn't say to myself, I shouldn't preach to myself, love her less. No. If I read the Bible, it says, that husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died. Died for her. So I actually need to love my wife more. So how does that work? Well, what it works is, what works is Jesus needs to displace my wife as uppermost in my affections. My love for her actually needs to grow. The problem is I got a deficiency The center of my heart, the place of supremacy, can only be with one God. Back to to this verse that's so easy to skip over. What's the most important? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. More than a wife, a husband, a child, a grandchild, a job, a a scientific breakthrough, whatever good thing it is that, that you love, God has to be supreme over that good thing. So, how does this relate to today's text? They were searching the scriptures. They were seeking righteousness. First century Jews, and by and large, they missed it except for the remnant. We want to be part of that remnant. We get there by regularly confessing our sins and putting our idols in their place. If they're good idols, I think that's what most of us in this room deal with. If they're wicked idols, we have to destroy them. Idols that need to be destroyed, Idols that need to be displaced. These are reasons to search the scriptures because we know God and love him, not because we're going to earn his favor and merit. Last last point from today's sermon. We're talking about healthy ways to search the scriptures, healthy ways to be earnest in, in seeking out righteousness, to use the language of Romans 11. Number three, um, we should search the scriptures So that you, your personal love for a small community of Christ followers grows, becomes powerful, becomes beautiful, becomes this alternate community, this alternate culture that our culture today in America in 2021 just so desperately needs. A 
culture of integrity, a culture of servanthood, a culture where we love each other as, as we've, we've just talked to, even to the point of death. This is a reason to search the scriptures. So to the degree that your life seems unbeautiful today, one of the questions you should be asking yourself in searching the scriptures, assuming you're a believer, if you're not, that's where you got to begin with that one place of supremacy. But if you are a believer, you need to ask yourself the question, how is my love for another few Christians displaying the beauty and glory of God? Look at a text here, John 13. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And and how has Christ loved us? There's two meanings there. We don't have time to go into it too long, but two meanings. One is he's just washed their feet. So how have I loved you? I've loved you in lowly ways of service. A practical expression of that today would be, you know, you can't take care of your home. I love you. I'm going to come and clean your bathrooms. That's the kind of love he's talking about. That's what the equivalent of foot washing was in the first century. A rabbi washing feet? You, this prominent person, coming and cleaning my bathroom, that's what Christians do if that's what that brother or sister in Christ needs. So as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The other meaning of how Jesus has loved us, we've already alluded to, was his death. The kind of love he has is is willing to die for those he loved. Let me just get real here for a moment. We don't generally get to know people on Sunday mornings to the level that we're going to die for them by coming here on Sunday mornings. So back to my third point, this is why I have for a small community of Christ followers. Now, unless your church is about 10 people or 12 people, once you're bigger than that, whether your church is 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, gathering in the large gatherings are really important, but we're probably not going to learn to love each other the way that, that God's word calls us to in that setting. So we need another setting. This is, this is important what we're doing this morning, but we need another setting. So we should search the scriptures and ask God to give us love for a small community of Christ followers. This is how all men, all women, all children will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another the way I loved you. I loved you. I gave my life for you, Jesus would say. I loved you and that I washed your feet. I did lowly acts of service that I wouldn't normally do for other people because I love you. This is how they will know that we are his disciples. So we should be searching the scripture saying, do I have this kind of community? If you don't, I don't want to heap guilt upon you today. What I want you to do is give you hope to take a step to build that kind of community. What do you need to do to build that kind of community with other women, with other men, with others in this fellowship or in others? These are the kinds of things we ought to search the scriptures for, not to try to get some gradient, some line, some metric where we're going to be declared righteous. I'll close um, as we talk about the importance of us loving each other with lowly acts of service and even to the point of death. Um, I'll share with you as I was praying through this and thinking through this passage as we close, I thought about the Gospel of Mark series we went through. How many of you guys here remember that? Some of you have been here, you remember the Gospel of Mark? So I don't have the greatest memory, so I couldn't like tell you the points of any one of those sermons I preached right now, just from memory. I didn't cheat and go look at them. If I had, then I could. 
But just from memory, I couldn't tell you any point of any sermon that I preached on the Gospel of Mark. But God still worked in my life as we went through that sermon series. And for me, it's, it's mostly when I'm preparing the sermon that God speaks to me, not when I'm preaching it. So you know what I remember from the Gospel of Mark? You know what stays with me? It wasn't the sermon points in Roman numerals that were on the line. What, one of the things that stays with me from our series going through the Gospel of Mark is throughout the entire book of Mark, as you look at the life of Jesus, he is constantly trying to get away from the crowds. Do you remember that? Like almost, I think every chapter, he's trying to get away from the crowds. Why? Well, there's two reasons. We don't have time to talk about the first one. One is to get alone with the Father. He wants to get alone with God. That's another sermon. This third, the second reason support, connects with the third point today. Second reason he's trying to get away with the crowds is to be with whom? The 12. He spent most of his time with 12 guys. Developing a relationship with them that's very different than going to a gathering of 100 or 1,000 or 10,000. 10, they talked. He knew them knew their struggles, and he loved them, and he literally laid his life down for them and for us. A good reason to search the scriptures is to come away saying, God, would you help me to grow in relationships, whatever that barriers are. Maybe you're shy and you have to overcome that barrier. Maybe it's you're just so busy you need to cancel things. This is major. This third point is major. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Forgot the period there. Does the world look at the church today and say, man, they love each other. They love each other. I hope they do. That's what happened in the first century. The Roman government wasn't caring for the poor. These Christians were. They were loving one another and caring those who were, for those who were desperate. And it made a statement to the world. We ought to search the scriptures so that we can grow to love one another. Let's bow our heads. Pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit the Holy Spirit who helps us to become the men and women that you want us to become. Lord, we pray that we would be able to sleep well at night knowing that you view us as righteous because of our faith in Jesus, our sin substitute, the one who obeyed the law perfectly in our place. And we pray, God, that we would continually be displacing and destroying idols and giving you the place of supremacy of worship in our heart and our lives. And we pray that you would help us to grow in loving one another. Help us to take tangible steps this week to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.